passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When Ryan when it's time to begin, it's on the rewind around with John Pollock and waiting the 18. That makes sense that these things we see in the ring every week on TV. It's rewind around for Monday night, download a Tuesday morning from the post wrestling site. It's rewind around for Monday night on USA now on the John and Wade take the mic. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Rewind to Raw. I am John Pollock, joined by Wei Ting, who is joining me from his private island that he has secured during this pandemic, uh, because that's what you need during this this time period. How are you, Wei? I'm doing well, John. Um, yeah, of course. No way, to, no better way to socially isolate than to uh, fly probably a hundred people to an island. Um, and I hope it's uninhabited because I would feel terrible for all the people that are actually there. We're going to get into everything on this show. There's a lot to come. We're going to chat about Raw. We're going to chat about the Edge documentary. Lots of stuff to talk about. But we have to start off with Dana White. Every single day, there is something new. And now the latest is that on Monday, we mentioned this on Sunday, that he had said UFC 249 is a go for April 18th. Well, it is. They have a whole card that they have announced now, highlighted by Tony Ferguson and Justin Gaethje, where the winner will be the interim UFC lightweight champion. It's going to take place at an undisclosed location. They are not revealing where this is. Uh, it's it's believed to be somewhere on the West Coast, but we, we don't have confirmation yet where it's going to be, but somewhere in the U.S. Now, on top of that, I'm sure what every rational human being is thinking well, wait a minute. What about all your international fighters? I mean, how are they going to fight right now? Well, Dana White has an answer for you. He tells TMZ, I have this venue for two months and I'm setting up shop here. We're going to be pumping out fights every week. I have also, I'm a day or two away from securing a private island. I have a private island that I've secured. We're getting the infrastructure put in now. So I'm going to start doing the international fights too with international fighters because I won't be able to get the international fighters all into the U.S. So I have a private island and I'll start flying them into the private island and doing international fights from there. So as of April 18th, the UFC is back up and running. Oh my God. That's like some like... Supervillain shit, man. It, what's he, what does he name this island? Is he gonna like call it his own? Like, the uh, Dana White Castle of Fear. <laughs> uh, this is hilarious. Yeah, who would have thought all this work for a bunch of MMA? This is nuts, dude. Like, it's just nuts. I think everyone is gonna get sweeped up from the comedy of this, but this is just another level of whatever, whatever. Uh, backlash that there's been to professional wrestling it it pales it pales in comparison to what is happening here 
This is unbelievable. Oh, yeah. No, it's crazy. It's absolutely crazy. And I mean, I just, I, I would say flies in the face of any other major sporting league. Um, who would go this far? That's, that's crazy. So this is, it seems like it's business as usual for the UFC. Like right after this call with the president of the United States, where allegedly it was said that we're hoping arenas and stadiums can open up in August or September, Dana White said, hmm, we'll, we'll see about that timetable. I'm going to work around things. Like to, in in some ways, it's it's sad to watch that this will, to me, this is the breaking point where I think even the mainstream media now takes a look at what the UFC has been up to over this past month and how adamant Dana White has been about promoting fights and getting these fights to happen. I think this this headline is so ridiculous that even your casual media is going to take notice of this, and I think it is really going to shine a light on the UFC and the story of this company that – their their narrative was always running towards regulation and we're we're run by the government the government runs these commissions and now we are going to be going to a, a unknown location in the US and then sending people to the island of misfit toys to promote fights weekly like throw aside like all the concerns about like these fighters that cannot be training anywhere near the adequate amount to be getting ready for, for these fights that will be cutting weight, that will be traveling, that will be engaging in actual fights on top of this. It's just, I, I can't even wrap my head around this of how the world is acting and how this, this little sliver of the world that just happens to be the beat that we cover is just immune to what is happening in the world. It's not. I have nothing more to say on this. This UFC card, uh, we have the whole list of fights that the UFC have announced. So uh, that is the April 18th card. Way, you did some writing today. A fantastic breakdown, a deconstruction, shall I say, of the Firefly Funhouse. This was really well done. Well, thank you very much. And thank you for all the people who have been sending kind words. I've just posted it not that long ago. Um but uh, yeah, no, I started writing this actually yesterday after talking about it on the show with you. And I feel like, you know, I got most of my thoughts out there on the podcast. But then, like, I was actually um, maybe sensing a lot of other opinions out there. And I was actually kind of disappointed that I feel like a lot of the um, a lot of people, I, I would say, perhaps didn't really. Um, I think there were a lot of things that were missed, basically, you know, in, in some of the criticism that that I had heard. And I felt like it was an opportunity for me to share what I thought of it so that hopefully um, people would be able to uh, at least, you know, maybe see a different per perspective. So if you wanted to check that out, that's up at postwrestling.com. It's called Deconstructed, a breakdown of John Cena and Bray Wyatt's Firefly Funhouse. I had a lot of fun doing it. Do you think that they can build upon this? And, and do you feel that there is enough of, their, of the audience as a whole that... Are, would be able to take like this is very unconventional by WWE standards where you are referencing so many things from the past. Like, do you think that there is the capacity for the audience? Uh, because personally, I, I think that I, I rewatched this immediately after our show last night. After you discussed it, I was like, I, I have to watch this again with a, a, a clearer set of eyes. But 
like what is the future of this kind of storytelling and can it be successful to the, the mass audience? I think so. I would certainly like to think so, but you know, because I think for such a long time, wrestling, especially WWE wrestling and storytelling has, it feels, it feels like it's been really dumbed down for, you know, our it's audience. 30 day cycles. It's like the pay-per-view ends and then history is rarely acknowledged to pay off for things down the road or to give you like, that was really hit me on the second time. Like mm. you watch this, you're very much rewarded for being a fan and following John Cena's career and every every little cutaway, every scene, like it mm. can tell the story. And that is something WWE rarely, rarely executes. Right. And that's that's the level of complexity that I think, you know, has driven so many people to become fans of New Japan Pro Wrestling because they do partake in long form storytelling with a lot of nuances and subtleties that you really have to rewatch or be a longtime fan in order to 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 get into. Um, I I would absolutely love to believe that you know um, WWE audiences would be capable of enjoying something like this as well. I think judging by the feedback to that particular match, I think the answer is is there as well. Um, it only comes down to whether or not one person enjoys it, you know, and that's Vince McMahon. And if he clearly he gave the okay for this, and I I would hope that he, he made this the main event. So I think that you have to imagine that he like if he didn't like this, semi-main, I don't think main. Um, or, yeah, or I, I guess so, top, but, yeah. uh, it, it really felt like the main event on this show. So, yeah. um, you know, we'll, we'll see. It's now taking this and applying that, that fiend character to mm. a follow-up to all of this. Yeah. I mean, the one thing that I think it, 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 you know, bodes well for it is the fact that it took place in the WWE, unlike Matt Hardy's, you know, uh, broken character, the final deletion, any of that stuff. This is considered a wwe creation and i think vince mcmahon hopefully would be aware of all the positive praise that the match might be receiving and as such uh, i hope he continues to you know produce it in the same way whether or not he is actually hands-on i we don't know um but uh, judging by i think the unconventional nature of the way this match was presented i would think that he had a lot of outside influence okay uh if i if i'm putting it mildly and I hope it, it it stays that way because there's clear there's a clear indication that there are very capable people within the company who can tell stories like this. They just have to be allowed to. What? How is John Cena portrayed the next time he shows up? It's a great question. I mean, we don't know when he will show up. I mean, I imagine to me this is like a big write off, and you know mm -hmm. he probably wouldn't be coming back anyway, uh, regardless of of the outcome. Um, but the next time he shows up, I would certainly be disappointed if he was just kind of happy-go-lucky John Cena again without addressing some character change coming that's, off of this. That's like a, a concern I would have, that six months from now, it's the exact same John Cena. And I and I hope maybe maybe I should be wrong about this, um, or at least uh, not be so uh, pessimistic about that, that this follows the trend of, you know, what we have seen with Bray Wyatt's you know, feuds in that it leads to a character change. And this would be the ultimate one for John Cena. But I think he disappears for a long time. And six months from now, I mean, what is the story we always hear about Vince McMahon? No one's going to remember that once time passes. Like he mm -hmm. believes everyone has a short term memory. And if he comes back and it's there's there's no change. I think that kind of lessens uh, what you could have here. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, the concern has always been you don't want to turn John Cena heel because he is your biggest merch mover. I don't know if you really have that concern anymore, you know, given his part time status anyway. 
And, um, you know, I, I ultimately feel like Cena's next appearance will be dictated by the needs of the company uh, whenever there's another big show and really like his own his own schedule. Um, and I don't even know if he would know when that would be. It could be as, as far as next year's WrestleMania or, or further. Uh, later on, we're going to chat about the Edge uh, 24 documentary, and we have a long episode of Raw to get through. But uh, I shortened up the news today. Uh, because we have a lot to get to. But our final thing here uh, is that, well, we can actually go over uh, some of the highlights this week uh, coming to the site. We're going to, on Tuesday night, have a special review of Tiger King. Yes. Yes, we are, John. Uh, This is in lieu of our MCU review for the month. I believe we will uh, be doing our Ant-Man review, Ant-Man 2 review at some some point later. Um, well, John and I have to kind of discuss it. But in lieu of that, I think a lot more people were interested in hearing our thoughts about Tiger King, the, uh, I would say, the uh, self-isolation um, viewing requisite, it sounds like. So it seems, hopefully by this point, most of you have already seen it. And if you want to hear our thoughts about it, uh, you can check out the Patreon feed. Yes, so we'll talk about that Tuesday night on the Post Wrestling Cafe. Uh, Wednesday night, we have our Dynamite and up, up Next shows coming your way. Thursday, we're back with the Cafe Hangout at 3 p.m. Eastern Time. All patrons can tune in live for that and call in. Friday night, Rewind to SmackDown. And I think we're going to pair that with our Dark Side of the Ring review of the Brawl for All. That sounds great. Hey, before we move on, anything more to, to promote? Uh, no. Okay, uh... I just wanted to thank everybody once again for all of your contributions over the past uh, week, not just to the Cafe Grande Hangout, uh, but also anybody who picked up a T-shirt from store.postwrestling.com. As you know, Robert Pearson, our event producer, helped produce one of these designs, and we decided to donate all proceeds towards two charities, the Sunnybrook Foundation and the New York Community Trust. And now I have a final tally of everything that we uh, uh, fundraised. And the total is seventeen hundred American dollars. So thank you all so much. That is incredible for uh, a little podcast like ours. Uh, so that'll be going to the Sunnybrook Foundation and the New York Community Trust. Thank you, everybody. Wow! Uh, thank you so much to everyone for your uh, your kind donations. That's a that's a phenomenal figure um, that we were able to raise last week. So thank you to everybody for uh, reaching out and contributing. I do have one final thing to promote, and it, we're going to hear a short clip of it. Uh, Wednesday morning on the site, we are going to have a lengthy interview with Jim Ross uh, up at postwrestling.com chatting about his new book, Under the Black Hat, My Life in WWE and Beyond. And I spoke with uh, Jim Ross on Monday and got his reaction to the Boneyard match and the Firefly Funhouse match. And I asked this question as well with the understanding that AEW, you would have to imagine, very much will be moving towards this style as well with the signing of Matt Hardy. So that was how I threw things to Jim with his reaction to both presentations over the weekend. Well, considering that Matt Hardy was a guy that innovated uh, that exact presentation alongside Jeremy Borash, who was also involved, I'm told, in the uh, Boneyard business, uh, I'd say I'd be all for it because between a guy like uh, Matt Hardy and a guy like Chris Jericho, uh, being able to call their own plays, John Moxley there, they have, they have broken that former WWE mold where you're very heavily produced more often than not. Uh, and so there's a lot of cooks in the kitchen. 
you know, we don't have any writers in AEW. Uh, there's no memorized promos. Uh, none of that stuff. Uh, it's all, it could be a blessing and a curse too, by the way, John. Uh, but we have a lot of guys that can talk and, uh, and we're going to see that that as time goes on even more prevalently, but, uh, I, I don't, I don't have any, uh, would have any qualms. I thought the, 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 uh, boneyard match with undertaker and AJ styles was absolutely amazing. And I loved it. And it may be an indication of where WWE is going in the future with some things, uh, or not, because you can control the environment. Uh, it's a unique situation. And they put us in a boneyard where we didn't expect to have a crowd. Uh, you know, it was, uh, it was a, it was a movie type situation. I liked it better than the Firefly Funhouse, but I will say this, the Firefly Funhouse was so, uh, creative. I think that to, to really appreciate it, a person will need to watch it more than one time and see all the little nuances that we may have missed. It's like I used to say about watching the Sopranos. The second time you watch an episode, it's a little bit better because you missed some dialogue on the first go around, uh, you know, for whatever reason. So, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we don't, we don't do some things like that. We've got the guy that invented it. So, and Matt Hardy. So I think we should use great bookers and Tony Khan is a great booker. Great bookers recognize what talents do well. And that's what they point them to. They find out what the talents do not do well. And they stay away from that entirely as best they can. And I think Tony's got that uh, down pad and, but the thing is he lets the wrestlers have an input. He, they buy in, they contribute to their stories. You know, Jericho didn't have a wealth of producers when he, he did that thing in his hot tub, in his backyard with the drone and all that stuff. That was Chris's idea. So it was, uh, talents are encouraged to create content. And these guys that came from other promotions who weren't allowed that opportunity as freely as they foresee they should are getting that opportunity with AEW. And I think it shows in their performances. So that full interview with Jim Ross will be out Wednesday morning at postwrestling.com. So look forward to that. It's a great chat uh, about many, many different uh, subjects going on as he is at home right now promoting his book, but uh, not traveling for the foreseeable future. So uh, look forward to that. We now move over to Raw from Monday night slash two weeks ago when this was taped. And right off the top way, this was maybe the longest episode of Raw I can recall in recent memory. In recent memory, absolutely. Because typically, I mean, what we've been served with these empty arena shows is a combination of a, a, a couple matches, but then like one long block of like a prior existing match from their archives. I was waiting for it. Today. I was banking on that today. And, that's and they why were promoting like they promoted like the Boneyard match and the Last Man Standing match. Like and it was just it was just these little highlight packs instead of I was expecting like they were gonna air one of them and it never came and it was just match after match after match for three hours. Dude, I know, I know. And you know what? At the same time, like you look at the ratings, I don't know when you know how, how many ratings they had kind of received um, by the time they taped this show, but I imagine they felt like a need to change up the formula a little bit, and obviously a couple of the fact that you had a number of talents that were in in the in the city for WrestleMania. Well, I I just look at this that I mean, how many matches did we have tonight? It seemed like it was it was an extraordinary number of matches, and we've got nothing on Friday. Yeah. As of as of right now. As of now. Yep. So let's get into things. Uh this was the 
night after WrestleMania Raw, where they were promoting it as the most unpredictable Raw of the year with Tom Phillips and Byron Saxton kicking things off for us. And immediately, it's Asuka versus Liv Morgan. And Asuka was in control as they went to the break. Scott Stanford was plugging the WWE Network this week. So there we go. Asuka was just toying with her. This was kind of um, just an, ext- an extension of last night's match with Natalia, with Asuka kind of bullying Liv Morgan, who just plays the underdog babyface that tries to stand up to the more established talent. And Asuka catches her with an armbar. Morgan postures up and then gets hit with a German shining wizard. And then Morgan misses as she lands on the middle rope and flips over with the Oscar lock attempt going for the same pinfall that Becky Lynch got over Shayna Baszler. Oscar kicks out and then Oscar gets to her back, finally drags her down, submitting her with the Oscar lock 11 minutes, seven seconds. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, as you'll find, I think with a lot of these matches, the outcomes aren't necessarily, you know, building towards anything. They, they are often like these matches were kind of showcases or in some cases, um, ways to rehab talents that took losses over the weekend um in this case i guess it was that um they lost right i'm trying to remember uh, oscar and Kyrie sane lost yeah they title. lost that's right yeah. yes uh, you know uh live morgan again like you know like we saw yesterday with the natalia match she's looking like an improving prospect showing a good level of confidence good level of intensity i you know it's clear that they're giving her a lot more airtime. i think what she needs right now because I think her in-ring level is at a certain standard already. What she probably needs the most right now is, is you know, a compelling character, a, a compelling voice and a compelling storyline. I don't know how, how much she's going to get sort of in this holding pattern, but, um, you know, whatever was they were trying with the Ruby riot thing just really wasn't working. Yeah. They've dropped that cold. Yeah. I mean, it also could be a case. I mean, we haven't seen Ruby Riot on any of these empty arena shows either. So it could also be a case where she wasn't available for uh, these tapings either. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Um, interesting to note tonight, like very little in terms of building up anything. Like there was no mention of money in the bank tonight other than uh, an offhanded remark by Big Show at the end. But like yeah. nothing about qualifying matches or even promoting that that's our next pay-per-view. It seems like everything was just in a holding pattern tonight. Certainly. Like you have to imagine throughout this week. I mean, I imagine Rob was really probably on the lowest of priorities, you know, because at that point in time, I don't think that anybody knew if they would even be back for another set of taping. So mm-hmm. I imagine it was quite difficult for them to, if they were faced with, with the challenge of having to promote to n- another destination. They showed uh, Becky's post-match interview after she had beat Shayna Baszler on Saturday, has held the title for a year, and puts Baszler over, but thinks that Shayna underestimated her, and Shayna doesn't have her number, and if she thinks she got lucky tonight, then Shayna can try her again. And we cut to Shayna, and she's talking about the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. The shrill of victory. The shrill? Is that what she said? (laughs) She said it with her mouthpiece in. Oh, yeah. She then took the mouthpiece out and just threw it down completely unsanitary and promises Becky the agony of her own defeat. I thought this was great. You know, it absolutely felt like a Heyman influence type of promo. But of course, I could be wrong. But, you know, I like this the, the very simple structure and a very memorable response, promising revenge, basically. So, you know, as a as a little segment to rehab Shayna following a loss, I thought it was very effective. 
Like it was intense. It made me go like, oh my God, she was pissed off before, but now that she's lost, she might be even more pissed off. So they they were saying how like these were what Aaron, uh, taken from WWE.com. Yes. Well, at the very least, like in, in the case of Becky, I felt like, you know, um, it felt very unscripted. It felt very improvised. And I know for .com, they often just like shoot stuff on the fly with, with their talent. And sometimes, especially in the case of like a Daniel Bryan, that ends up being the best stuff. So the fact that they were able to actually put onto TV some of those kind of looser interviews, I thought was overall an improvement on the quality of, of the interviews. Yeah, this was the post-takeover style that you'd see on NXT, where it was just taking the, the promos from the, from the after the pay-per-view and, and running them here. And yeah, they had a very natural feel to them, I, I would say, by and large. The Street Profits versus Angel Garza and Austin Theory for the Raw tag titles were next. Uh, Garza and Theory getting a rematch for the titles. And the Profits attack both. We go through a commercial. The heels are in control of Dawkins. Then Ford gets the tag. This is the formula now for all the Street Profits matches where we've got uh, Montez Ford playing Ricky Morton. And Ford goes to the top, gets stopped by Zelina Vega, and the referee just throws everything out at 9 minutes, 41 seconds. Again, Zelina Vega goes to strike Montez Ford as Bianca Belair comes out once again and hits Vega with a spine buster. The Profits run off Garza and Theory and Bianca announces, I go here now, and cuts this great promo about being the EST, including the fastest, so Zelina can't run her, uh, or can't outrun her, and she wants a match. I thought, a really great promo from Bianca here to uh, introduce herself if people were not familiar with her. She sounded great. You know, I love her promo style. I love her voice. It's unique to herself. It it It, it is honestly, like, it's a hip voice. Like, you know, um, amongst the sea of, I would say, I don't know. What are you just, trying to say? <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, just something as simple as I go here now. I think that works so well. Uh, I love her as an addition to the Street Profits. You know, just even I would say for a casual viewer, you know, the knowledge that she is attached to this group and that she and Ford are a real life couple. I think immediately gives her like an identifiable character trait. So. You know, of course, like any new debut that occurs right now is kind of unfortunate given the lack of audience, but um, mm-hmm. but they do need that fresh blood more than ever. So we got the impromptu match with Bianca and Zelina Vega. Vega slaps her in Bel Air, who towers over Zelina Vega. She is so tiny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it made, makes her a good first opponent. Vega comes back with a dragon sleeper, and then Bel Air gets up to her feet, suplexes her, presses Vega in the air while she's squatting, and then Austin Theory gets on the apron, is yanked down by Ford, and they brawl into the ring. The match gets thrown out again after four and a half minutes. So Montez Ford proposes a six-person tag. I couldn't fucking believe this shit, dude. Dude, this Uh, is where I was just... I was just fixated on the clock, and that's all this felt like. It's like, we are just running the clock on this show. And this was like where I just hit a wall. And this was the first hour. I thought, like, there are a lot of people that were in town, but clearly, like, man, these six were, like, <laughs> probably made up, like, uh, I don't know, 25%. Dude, this was a half hour of TV time. It was That ridiculous. they dedicated to the profits with Garza, the, the whole contingent here. And the cheap way that, that they dragged these segments out is just uh, such a turnoff. Two non-finishes in a row, just so you can build to a six-man. It's just, it's so lazy. 
We had a SmackDown promo that promoted nothing because, well, at this time, they, they may not know what's on Friday. So the Prophets and Bianca Belair against Garza, Theory, and Vega. Theory applies a rear naked choke onto Ford, who rolled free, made the tag to Belair. She hit a gut buster, a handspring into a moonsault onto Zelina Vega. That looked good. And then Ford gets hit with a super kick on the floor. They fight to the back, and then Belair uses the pretty much like a dodon onto the buckle into the KOD and pins Zelina Vega at 527. So I, I think, by and large, um, a good spotlight for Bianca Belair, who, fe- who felt like the, the featured performer of the six. But it was uh, quite the trek to get to this ending. Yeah, Bella looked awesome. I mean, she, like, in-ring immediately stands out with her style. Again, very different, but very crisp-looking. Very impressive handspring here. Uh, just very r- impressive agility and just just everything. Um, so I I thought she was great. But the, the way they framed this whole thing, I ultimately felt like the segment was a big turnoff. Just, like, how do you, how do you just... Why not just, like, give me a straight match, man? Or, like, give me two straight matches rather than having to... Like just do your shenanigans. It kind of brought me back to like remember when they were having to fit um those commercial breaks in there with the fall, two out of three falls and God all that. Remember bullshit. that. Remember those oh, like God. that month or two of just you know talk watching of, all that stuff. Seriously, like talk about it like a lack of respect for I think you know your audience and a lack of respect for really just like to me the sanctity of like trying to maintain this illusion that these are real life sporting events. Um. Like it just it, it they're way too convenient. It, like these DQs are way too convenient to to actually occur, occur in any sort of sort of believable sense. But anyway, yeah, that sucked. They recapped Alistair Black beating Bobby Lashley. Lashley was interviewed, thinks that he needs new management or a new wife. <laughs> imagine, <laughs> imagine saying like saying that in like an interview on national TV. God, this guy uh, clearly is not concerned. Um. Lana walks in and Lashley just walks off and Lana asks Charlie, what did you do to him? So as the drama unfolds between those two, Alistair Black versus Apollo Crews, the man who debuted the night after WrestleMania 32 four years ago. Here he comes out and I learned that he is coming over to Raw due to draft picks that were about to expire. This was the SmackDown make good from when they acquired Alexa Bliss and Nikki Cross for future considerations last October. Really? Um, I didn't. Which even... apparently had a time limit on them, so they had to compensate them for those for that trade for the future considerations. And it was Apollo Cruz that they that Raw got back for Alexa Bliss and Nikki Cross. I guess I didn't even realize Cruz was on SmackDown. I uh, I had to think about it, and the only reason I remembered was, um, who was it? It was it. Oh, was the well, guy? yeah, yeah, it was a Shorty G. Shorty G. That's yeah. who I was thinking of. Yeah, that's the only connection I had of Apollo Cruz to that, SmackDown. That went nowhere. Remember, remember Shorty G? I can't even barely remember that You're guy. Right, I haven't seen him in a while. Um, yeah, that storyline went nowhere too. So. At the beginning of this, each are trying to out-wrestle the other, and they're just battling for position, and I was really liking this. Um, mm-hmm. they, went th- they went through their first commercial break uh, after Alistair sat down and Cruz wanted none of it. 
And the big thing they were promoting all night long was WrestleMania was the most social event in WWE history. That was the big. What was their uh, justification for that? Um, what the justification was, it was yeah. to make it just sound big. I mean, like, yeah, like, how do they even, how do they even get to that stat? I don't know. I I would love to know the accounting firm that gets to that number, but I'm sure there is, uh, I imagine if you did a deep dive into social media analytics, I am sure that is a thriving industry when it comes to construction of stats. All right. But whatever it was, it was 13.8 million social, whatever it means. So I, I imagine it's like the uh, Hulk Hogan crown jewel effect as well, that man, this WrestleMania sucks. That's a social media engagement. So joke's mm -hmm. on you. They come back. Black hits him with an overhead belly to belly on the floor. Uh, I'm not going to go through all of this, but I'm going to say 70% of this, the first 70%, I love this. Mm -hmm. I thought this was the best Apollo Crews match I've seen in God knows how long. And I really enjoyed like this different type of style. And then... They went to a se second commercial break. I'm like, okay, okay. We are clearly <laughs> bulking up this this match for as long as it can go. Cruz hit his spinning sit-out powerbomb. Black then leaped at almost like this flying knee bar attempt and locked it on while he had like the figure four in. Cruz gets to the rope and he's eaten these leg kicks. So he was selling his leg great. Like he could not put weight on it. He went for a standing moonsault and couldn't execute it because of the leg. But after he lands this in Zaguri, a third commercial break. I cannot yeah. remember the last time there was a match that had three breaks in it. So It would have been like a gauntlet match or something. Yeah, which I think is totally different than a singles match. But this was four segments, ending where Cruz comes off the turnbuckle, gets hit with a knee, Black sets up for the Black Mass, and it's stopped. And then Cruz throws a punch that Black ducks and hits the Black Mass. The total amount of television time for Apollo Cruz, dude, in 2020, 27 minutes and 30 seconds. That's insane, man. For this match? Yes. I, I was with you. Like, I actually enjoyed a lot of this. You know, I, I, thought, I thought this was one of the better TV matches I've seen in a while. Yeah. And then it just... it. It edge and Orton. That is sort of the the, the new phrase, you know. Um, on onto the positives. I thought Cruz was able to show a lot more here, obviously than usual. He's got great agility for somebody of his size, and he was given a lot, and he looked great here. And I thought Alistair Black too. You know, it was nice to see him in a competitive match. He can clearly do a lot more than just kick and sit cross legged. In particular, I was really impressed with his grappling in this match. He, he has it. thrived in these empty arenas. I think mm -hmm. he might be con my most consistent performer I've seen, as, at least in WWE. I would say this guy routinely, whether it's the quick squash or even something like this, the, like the majority of this, mm -hmm. I enjoyed. He He's great. He moves very smoothly, very well on the ground. It's like, I, I, I could, if you're going to do a 30-minute empty arena match, I think he's a, a very good candidate. But that said, given the lack of story and anticipation and the lack of star power for something like this, nobody should be made to go for 30 minutes. And shit, even Edge Norton shouldn't have been made to go for 30 minutes. How would Aleister Black and Apollo Crews do? So This was man. insane at this, this amount of television time. Like already, you know, you get one commercial break, it interrupts the flow. Two commercial breaks, like you better have a really damn hot match. And at three, it's just 
checkout time. Uh, this was just insane that it went this long. This should have been 12 minutes. Yes, yes. Uh, okay, so, I mean, the other thing is, I guess, they typically would have something to, you know, air from their archives to build towards WrestleMania, I suppose. Um, what could they have shown on Money this? in the Bank. Well, I guess they don't know if Money in the Bank is going to take place. You can still throw a ladder match on there. I don't think it would have been a big problem. They really could have shown anything if they yes. wanted to. Like th- this to me, I don't want to watch Raw of three hours of these empty arena matches. This was very taxing to watch, especially mm-hmm. coming off this weekend. Um, next was Ricochet and Cedric Alexander against Oni Lorcan and Danny Birch. Uh, Ricochet and Cedric are a really entertaining tag team. And what I needed at this point was a fast three and a half minute match. And that's what I got here. I have no complaints about this. Lorcan and Birch are one of my favorite tag teams. Uh, Ricochet got the tag from Cedric and just had this great uh, sequence, including a leaping Rana. Then Cedric came in Manhattan drop that ended with a ricochet shooting star, like doing tons of double team maneuvers. And then it ended with the neuralizer. And then Ricochet hit the Benadriller, which Tom called the recoil, which is a totally different move of his arsenal. But this was his GTS. And Won it in 331. Brief little match. Uh, I think a continued introduction to Cedric and Ricochet as a tag team. And of course, they look very good together. I, I, I think it's nice that they found each other for a tag team. But I am also just kind of still settling with like the disappointment I have of how how much they gave up on Ricochet so quickly. Or, or how they basically didn't really give him, a, in my opinion, a fair shake as a single star. When I really thought he was going to be a sure thing. Yeah, he just seems like they feel like Paul London and Brian Kendrick. That's yeah. their role on mm-hmm. the show, which I mean, in this era, I mean, they're, they'll probably get many more opportunities to have great matches. But there there is a limit to this, I feel, on Raw. He's um, pigeonholed now, I would say, in this spot. And I think it'll be that much t- more difficult to convert him to a single star if that's, you know, even their intent. Recap of Seth Rollins and Kevin Owens. And then we had Kevin Owens in a parking lot saying that the last five months of his career were hell. This started in November with Rollins. He just wanted him in the ring one-on-one, and it was all worth it for his WrestleMania moment. But now it's time to move on. He is here to stay, and it is always the Kevin Owens show. And he later said that this was the favorite, his favorite promo of his career because it was his wife that shot this on her camera. No way. Yes. That's pretty cool. I think you should have... Um, I should have told you, you could have given some uh, a breakdown of this. I want the deconstruction. Like, was the headspace okay? I mean, I didn't sense any shakiness. She did a great job. Looks so like. there you go. A lot of talent in this family. Seth Rollins and Denzel Dejournet. This mm-hmm. was angry Seth, who just gingerly walked to the ring, killed this man, stomped him, and pinned him in a minute 24. This was his rehab match. Yeah. Yeah. You know, quick squash. Um we just had a slew of these in a row. Yeah, I think rehab matches like the. I, I mean, obviously the, the the concept makes sense. Um, I guess I just don't know if like Seth Rollins beating like a random jobber quickly does does that do anything? It's just a match. It's just you know. I felt way more, you know. Um, I think rehab. Um, I don't know uh, effectiveness from like that Shayna promo where she just like sounded so pissed off after a loss and basically kind of vowed revenge against Becky Lynch. Um, this was, it was fine, I guess. 
they'd never do this in in this era. But you know how you always get the 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 fighter or whatever in any walk of life, any award show or something, and they always they take time to thank God. But when someone loses, they never blame God. <laughs> and that promo to me would it would have been too comedic. But to me, it was one thing I thought here, like Seth Rollins being so delusional that it wasn't his fault. It was God's fault that he 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 was clearly not fully committed to Seth Rollins on this night. That That is one I would love to hear in a UFC at some point. First and foremost, got to place some of the blame on someone's shoulders and it sure as hell isn't mine. Oh, man. <laughs> Nia Jax returned. Almost a year to the day of her last match, which was last year's WrestleMania. Double oh. knee surgery took her out for the entire year. Jeez. Wow. So she is back. And that's that's a tough you know, pair of surgeries to come mm-hmm. back to. Both knees. Um, so she destroyed Deanna Perrazzo in a minute 33. And this just featured uh, some clotheslines, some Owen drop, and then hoisted up Deanna into like uh, into a DDT and pinned her in a minute thirty three. You know another unfortunate return without any crowd, um, but I guess without that surprise reaction, it, it really doesn't matter that much. So you have to imagine Becky would be the next program. Yeah, they're clearly keeping Shayna there in the background, but right. maybe that's something you wait till you go back to that rematch or you finish that and then Nia Jax is waiting in the wings for Becky. I kind of like just let's go to Nia now and let's wait to do Shayna and Becky again. Right. And, you know, judging by this, the uh, arrival of uh, Bianca Belair and now more with Shayna, um, like the Raw division is starting to beef up. They've, they've, I mean, they always had, like, since the draft, like, you already had, like, Becky and Charlotte as kind of your pillars there. And I guess Charlotte's probably going to split time now. But, um, yeah, it's, like, there there are options. There are definitely a lot of interesting options in the uh, the Raw women's division. Umberto Carrillo versus Brendan Vink. Um, this was just a um, fun match for Carrillo here. Some dives, uh, rolled into a moonsault, and then hit the top rope moonsault to win in 321. You know, like many of these shows, they're very generic house show level type types of matches um, with a guy and then a non-established guy at all. So this was like watching like NWA Power. Kind of. Yeah. Just without, like short, without, short without the squashes. 60, without the 605 um, time limit. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't have a we didn't have Dave Marquez to go speak with Humberto Carrillo right after. Yeah. So they've been on hiatus, eh? And have they? They've been airing like a, I think a lot of older stuff, just just old footage. I mean, yeah. to their credit, okay, they had um, a big special, but it was all geared around. Whoa, are you Sorry okay? About that. I was actually loading up the site. I, I thought it was uh, the 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 truth shall be heard. I thought this was the SmackDown interruption. No, it was not that. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, so they they had a special that they had in the can and ready to air, but they it was all building up to that Crockett Cup show. Mm-hmm. And with the Crockett Cup not happening, they they didn't air the special. And I think that there is uh, I I would not have cast any blame had they just run something that they had already spent the money on to promote and and did the taping. I mean, impacts in that that same position where they're airing TV that's building up this 
non-existent rebellion that's supposed to be happening in two weeks. And I don't fault them. Like, you have spent all this money on these tapings. I get why you're airing them. You have to fill this TV time. So it just – there's no immediate payoff to it unless they come up with some uh, option because Impact, they're, they're running out of shows that they have in the can. Well, what they do have is a video of Tim Storm talking about meeting Joe Exotic in 2016. So <laughs> They do have that to, yeah. uh, to lean on as well. Mm-hmm. Of all people to have interactions with Joe Exotic, Tim Storm, like the nicest man in professional wrestling with Joe Exotic. They recap Charlotte Flair's victory over Rhea Ripley, and then Charlie interviewed Charlotte, who does not want to be congratulated. She talked about how her father had custom suits and said, it's not the suit that makes the man, it's the man that makes the suit. And it's the same with her being the woman that makes the title, not the other way around. Rhea was good, but she, like everyone else, had to bow down. Nice little short promo from Charlotte here, referencing, you know, one of her dad's famous lines that fits perfectly, I think, with her situation right now. And I guess her next direction is kind of, I don't know what they do. Like, do they just extend this with Rhea Ripley? I would think so. I think you have brand new challengers for Charlotte from NXT and just kind of, you know, make compelling. We have the the winner of that ladder match that they're going to air on Wednesday. That Mm. would be, to me, should be our first title defense. Yeah. Whenever they can tape all of this stuff. But yeah, there. And I think ultimately Rhea needs to beat Charlotte. I think that that should be the person that ends up beating her. I agree. Then we saw Drew McIntyre winning the title and all show long. They're teasing the breaking news of the shocking footage that happened after Drew McIntyre won the title. Shocking footage. So we go to said shocking footage The timeline of this is that it's been 20 minutes since Drew won the title and he is brought back to the ring so Sarah Schreiber can interview him. In those 20 minutes, he has changed the plates on the belt. He thanks Paul Heyman for telling Lesnar to give him another F5 and deliver them all night long because it caused Drew's life to flash in front of his eyes and how he's been knocked down, but he had to get back up and Paul made him angry. And he got angry after each F5. And then the big show comes out with a referee. He says, this is a big man's world and you are not a giant. He tells Drew that you don't know shit about why I'm out here. I'm not challenging you for a title shot. I'm not challenging you for money in the bank. I just want a match. Drew said, I'm not fighting right now. Big show said, well, I see fear. And Drew says, let me say this slowly for you. There is nothing you can say that will convince me to fight you. So she slapped him. And Drew said, okay, I'm going to fight you. And not only did he agree to fight him, the title's on the line. Big Show didn't even have to ask for this. He gets a title match right out of the gate. I don't know how that happened. because Just because somebody slaps you and you fight back, is that... You agreeing to defending your title? I mean, this to me, the rankings, like the integrity of this championship (laughs) committee is certainly in question. The granting of this title match for a guy that, I mean, what's he done? What's, what's, I think the most interesting is just how this idea came to be. The Raw after WrestleMania and our main event is a, a match that was supposedly taped 
20 minutes after the conclusion of WrestleMania. How did yeah. how did this occur? And, you know, makes you wonder why they didn't just wait till the next day. I mean, I, I spent know. the whole match thinking about this. It's like, why? Why is this happening? Why are we watching a goddamn WrestleMania dark match? The best theory I can come up with is that one of these two was not available the next day and they could not change the set that quickly. And they just had to do this with the WrestleMania set. I, I have no okay. explanation. The other thing is, if you remember, the Raw, this Raw was actually taped before WrestleMania. So mm. could... Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, I So so it could be that Drew wasn't in town or whatever. Like, I don't... Big, whoever wasn't Big Show, maybe it wasn't... I don't know. Well, whoever. you know what? You know what? It was probably the bare minimum people, and they didn't want anyone that didn't need mm-hmm. to to see drew with the title exactly that is what that might have been it and they had to do it at b- before they did raw and have the absolute least amount of people present there like we had that's a crazy amount of fucking hoops to try to jump through in order to you know present this big show versus drew mcintyre match that's insane yeah um uh, tom phillips brought up halloween havoc 95 didn't get on to the the following month's pay-per-view, but nonetheless, Big Show yells at him, I've been here for decades, which sounds, I guess, a lot more lengthier than saying 25 years, but he has technically wrestled in four decades, pending your definition of whether we are in a new decade in 2020 or he has to wait till next year. Wait a second, four decades and 25 years are the same thing? In this kind of math, it's... Four wow. decades, I would say that means 40 years. Yeah. But he has wrestled in the 90s, the 2000s, the 2010s, and now the 2020s. That's where he gets oh, the definition. Oh, okay, okay, got it. Yes. So he barely dips his feet into kind of like the two two decades at the end. <laughs> he wrestled for five years in one decade, and he's wrestled like once or twice in this current decade, yes. Okay. So that's, that's your clever accounting. Maybe it's Big Show that got to the social number that wrestlemania attracted why didn't he just tell us the number of days that he's been a wrestler <laughs> <laughs> let's do the math how many how many years 25, 25 years okay well give or take a few days he has been a wrestler the big show has been a wrestler for nine thousand one hundred and twenty five days is that right that, that can't be right wait 365 let me do that one more time that sounds right oh yeah yeah, yeah. I've been here for 9,165 days, and I'm not even including leap years, bitch. Oh, jeez. Then we'd know it would be a Heyman promo. (laughs) So, dude, Big Show just beats the shit out of this guy for like six minutes and attacks his ribs, hits him with a Vader bomb, chokeslam is countered. Drew comes off off the turnbuckle and is hit with a chokeslam, kicks out. Ducks the KO punch, Claymore, and wins this in 6.55. And I was just so ready for Raw to be done at this point. Man, they needed a main event, and this is what they had. Um, You know, you have to wonder if this was always in the works for this edition of Raw, or if it was a last-minute choice. Um, Who knows? That that really is the most fascinating part about all this. But, uh, yeah. Um, It was a, you know... I, I imagine a very trying edition of Raw to put together under very strange circumstances, like taping it before WrestleMania. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, they were, uh, to be honest, I, I just think like 
my biggest complaint of this was not even like the logistics of it. It was just like the sheer amount that the, the, the amount of work they created for themselves. There were like 10 matches on this show. It's, I mean, God, lean on your library a little. Um, I, I, regardless of like, I, I think this show is going to do very poorly tomorrow. I can't imagine the, the after WrestleMania bump is going to be really of any significance. I imagine this is by far going to be the lowest post mania raw in years and years, if not the lowest. Yeah. I would anticipate that myself. Um, at the same time, I'm just like, Hmm. They've had a number of weeks to try to like, you know, play with this format and play with kind of this, uh, strange kind of set of circumstances. Um, yet, at least on Raw, we haven't really seen anything that much more creative than, you know, your generic wrestling match or, uh, you know, archival footage uh, and then the occasional interview. When I think we've seen over this weekend, the possibility for, you know, professional wrestling content is can be very limitless if they wanted it to be. There's certainly, I think, if they end up doing more tapings this week, I mean, the idea of introducing newer elements, um, that's something I would lean on. Like, these these shows are not going to be perfect. Like, they're they're going to have negatives to them, whether it's a lot of empty arena matches, whether it's, you know, being forced to rely on old content that some people that's just going to be a tune-out for. Um, it, it's not an ideal scenario, but... They are moving forward with these shows. So it's like they have put themselves in this position and it's uh, filling a lot of time at the moment. And I guess the more interesting question is finding out what, what happens this week, what we see on SmackDown. And is it full steam ahead? Are they going to be going to Dana's mysterious island or w- where will they be doing this? I feel like Vince would probably want to ask what the rate is to rent a chunk of this island. Just imagine that that presidential call on Saturday. And, uh, hey, hey, Dana, you, you got a minute after? I wanted to throw some ideas by you. This Florida stay-at-home thing is uh, causing me some problems here. I understand you've got uh, an island. People buying islands now to do combat sports. It's it's insane. Oh, my God. The best part of the TMZ interview. I can't believe I even glossed over this. The interviewer says, hey, so uh, – Joe Rogan has said he's not going to be commentating this. I mean, who's going to be doing it? Joe Rogan never said that. It's the media. The media. They listen to these podcasts, and then they write all this stuff. Joe Rogan's calling the show. And mm-hmm. somebody put a, a clip of that immediately followed by Joe Rogan. Actually, like the exact clip of him saying, I'm not calling that show. <laughs> That's hilarious. Dude, he's out of his mind. He is absolutely out of his mind. It really is like concerning how somebody with so much power can be so messed up. Yeah, it's it's really eye opening to to watch. I mean, you can you could certainly trace back to, to Dana. Like there have been instances of this, but never to me to such a degree of this where it's just he has compounded it with each subsequent media appearance, each move, and just an obsession. I would say an unhealthy obsession, literally unhealthy obsession to pursue with the these cards yeah like think of the costs involved of securing this island versus like these fighters like think of the amount that they are spending to secure an island dude it's crazy i know can they possibly be making it back 
I mean, to do the pay-per-view, they are guaranteed like, you know, the the licensing fee that ESPN Plus would pay for each pay-per-view. So I imagine like it's an enormous like that to me, I see as being a big incentive for them to do this because it's regardless of how the pay-per-view performs, they get an amount from ESPN Plus and then it's are, believed are they, they getting, go are they getting an amount that's equal to the cost of an island? Well, I don't know what the cost of the island is. I <laughs> this I, is those like the last crazy. time I was in the market for an island. I, <laughs> I don't know what the rates would be like now. It's like this is out of my expertise. If there are any experts out there that have ever leased an island, John at postwrestling.com, I would love to know who do you call? Who is the first phone call in that attempted transaction? Like do you call uh, they like is there like yeah. an, an international like real estate representative? Is it the I, government? Is it like where do you I start think, that? And what is the opening pitch from Dana White uh, when you have that in mind? I would call the Illuminati, maybe uh, the Freemasons. Sure, there are some connections. I don't know. He's got a lot of rich friends, so who knows? All right, that was raw. Let's head over to th- some feedback tonight. At forum.postwrestling.com, this was a, a more positively viewed Raw 6.29 from the oh, forum. Wow. All right. Uh, by the way, everybody, we're going to get to our thoughts on the Edge 24 right after feedback. We start with Alexander from Portland. Was the six-person tag match the biggest match we've seen competitor-wise since the empty arena shows? I was curious just how many people WWE would have in the Money in the Bank ladder matches. And judging from what we saw earlier, I feel like they'll limit them to six participants each. What are your thoughts in this COVID-19 world? How many people can be put into one match before too much of your audience base is uncomfortable? Well, they're doing the ladder match on NXT. Um, for That's the six. With a referee, with people ringside, with production. This was, I, I believe, before everything kind of went down, but they did that 10-man on 205. That's right. That, that, would, that would be the most, I would think. And then like, even for that. And then they did the 24-7 segment on Sunday night with lots yep. of people involved. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the number 10, like, to be honest, like, it's... There's always it's, more than 10 people there, everybody. Like, if you you notice not just the people in the ring, but the crew that's backstage or, or like, you know, where the lighting is and the camera and everything, there's always it, – it, it's not – I don't think they're really sticking to, you know, necessarily a hard and fast 10 rule, uh, more, more so than they are just trying to limit the total number of people, period. I mean, I can't go into – like, there are stores I can't go into if another person is in there. Like, it is limited to one to two customers in the entire store. Mm-hmm. Um, you either think this is absolutely insane to begin with, or I don't know if you're you're placing much thought into it, that it's it doesn't bother you. Um, I think that's those are the only two options at this point. I don't think there's much in between. I, I will say I don't think they will go beyond maybe it is the number six. Before they, you know, are, are probably concerned about facing any sort of like criticism from from their audience for having too many people. You're not going to see a battle royal right now, right? No, no. And they um, specifically eliminated those. Yeah. And even like a number 10, uh, that that will probably be too much. But a six person, maybe that'll be the limit. We go to Nick who says, somehow the Raw After Mania felt like an improvement over the regular that the company had been presenting over the past last weeks. But somehow it made the typical Raw after Mania formula more apparent without the audience. I'm hopeful about some of the moves to Raw. Bianca should be a delight. 
And on a personal confession, I get excited when they tease us with the idea that they're going to do something with Apollo Crews. And I can only hope that they don't crush my dreams too much. Could you see that being a big send-off for Big Show? Or does he still have a few years left to give in the ring? I, I didn't view this as a send-off for him, but I think at most you're going to see an extremely limited uh, presence of a Big Show. I was surprised that there was no promotion of his show on Netflix that launched today. That's what I thought he was there for. And then Me when, too. When he walked out, I thought, okay, yeah. this is they'll at least make a big deal of like this is like the WWE is partnering with Netflix for this. This is not like this is a a Dave Batista movie that they have no involvement in. And I was very surprised that they didn't make I I heard no mention of it. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, you know, you'll probably get a lower third at some point uh, when the show comes out. But I, I, I believe Big Show continues to find himself in that utility role. Somebody, anytime they need, you know, an automatic title challenger who's a big guy, he'll come in as long as he's Florida guy. Wrestle. Florida, okay, yeah, there you go as well. So, um, he what is wrestling twice a year, three times a year on TV, like if that. So I would say he still probably has a couple of years. Andrew from Cape Breton, it seems like going forward, WWE might just try to use jobber matches more while they're doing shows in front of nobody. I guess Dana White stole the private island idea, but WWE have stolen ideas before. I thought some of the stuff went long, like the Street Profits segment. This reminded me of a story where Duke Drosy and Aldo Montoya were the only wrestlers that arrived in an arena and were told to stall for 45 minutes. I know WWE likes to repeat angles, but Apollo Crews has had the same angle for years now. He comes in for a fresh start, then loses and is never heard from again. Low light of the night was Byron Saxton with a damn dirty lie about the Big Show and Drew McIntyre match being the first time that happened at a WrestleMania. Nobody f- will forget what a terrible person Hulk Hogan was stealing the belt at WrestleMania 9, a 5 out of 10 show. Oh, that's what I thought Big Show's inspiration was. He must have watched his WrestleMania 9 tape and then it was like, what? screw this like Royal Rumble stuff. I'll just show up after the show. Didn't have the powder, though, from Mr. Fuji, so he was unsuccessful. How many brands has Apollo Crews switched? Oh, he's he's bounced all over the place. I mean, he I thought he debuted on Raw when he was called up because it was the Raw. It was the night after WrestleMania. I don't think it was the SmackDown. Right. Uh, But he's ping pong back and forth. He was on. I know he was on Talking Smack because there was one time Daniel Bryan called him Apollo Creed. These are the ways I remember Apollo Crews. It's like like bloopers. Um, I kind of have it here. Okay, so he debuted on Raw, then okay. moved to SmackDown with the first draft, and right. then the next year went to Raw and then became a part of That's Titus Worldwide. That's where he was t- Titus Worldwide, right. And then it, um, after that, he went... Wait a SmackDown second. at the last draft? Um, I guess so, yeah. I guess he went to SmackDown. Because he's been on SmackDown the, this... Whole time. 2019 and yeah. then now back to raw how memorable <laughs> all right uh dude I he's can... been on the main roster for four years he's accomplished nothing it's so sad to say for a guy that talented um is it andrew or jalen 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 from pickering says i only caught bits and pieces i continue to feel for drew as everything they've done with him has been good on paper and with the crowd but underwhelming in execution but I guess that's the best case scenario at this point. Charlotte's promo was hilarious as her main roster run is using titles and signature wins to prop her up. After seeing the Oscar dance, she is definitely the best thing in these weird wrestling times. Jesse in Taipei, I'd just like to say that my initial reaction to the Firefly Funhouse match was, huh, that was weird. 
But after hearing Wei passionately describe it and then reading his essay deconstructing it, I now believe it was the greatest storytelling segment in wrestling history. Great job, Wei. If there's anybody clever at WWE.com, they will offer to buy your essay and publish it on their site as an accompanying piece to the match. It greatly enhanced my enjoyment of it. Oh, that's very kind, Jesse. Yes. <laughs> it, it was I, an I, essay, <laughs> I guess. We joked about like, hey, like, yeah. It's it's The one thing is that I think you sold that match to me way more effectively than I did like the the show did in the moment that mm-hmm. I was watching it yeah. and I when I read when I read your piece I would just challenge if Bruce Pritchard could write that same thing out and maybe he could I don't know I can't speak for Bray Wyatt Bray I think certainly has like a deep understanding of all this but it's just hard for me to imagine Bruce Pritchard uh seriously Penning this essay. You know, like, I think judging by prior work, I can absolutely, like, I would agree that it it is nothing like, you know, the work of Bruce Pritchard in the past. So I, I, or Vince McMahon explaining like your essay to the, like, this is the vision we have. Well, this is like, you know, my feeling is that like, and even if you seen the way that they had, you know, their announcers kind of talk about these things. And I don't know if the announcers by this point had even seen the Firefly Funhouse match, but like their kind of reactions to it were very much more just like, huh, what a weird thing, you know? Like, I don't even know if the producers of the shows themselves know the level of complexity and depth that exists in a segment like that. So, you know, to me, it's it's at the very least clear that two people understand. And then that'll be the, the Bray Wyatt and John Cena and probably some of the other producers and the editors that worked on the thing as well. But I, I it, it really does feel to me like it's one of those segments that was like, hey, you guys do whatever you want with it and then just show it to us. And if we like it, we'll air it. And yeah. I guess they liked it. And we should add that... Uh- Dave Meltzer did add that it was, you know, Bruce Pritchard was heavily involved in it with with Bray Wyatt and that John Cena also put in like a lot of input, too, for some changes as well. So those that did seem to be kind of the, you know, if you want to uh, assign credit, like those three seem to be the principles. Okay, I stand corrected if if he's involved with that. We go to Ben from Vancouver. I loved how Bianca Belair did her full-on robotic entrance as her husband was getting her his ass kicked. And then I loved her talking not to the people that attacked her husband, but to the hard cam. NXT really knows how to train them. I think it's way too early to bring her up. She has a ton of potential, but her selling needs a lot of work. I also want to see her get revenge on Charlotte. Teaming with the Street Profits will do nothing for her. One other thing, why on earth was Cruz and... Alistair Black, 20 minutes. Didn't Cruz and Gable just lose to Sheamus in two minutes? Why does Black need that long to win? Very weird. I think we're getting a faction with Lashley, Cruz, Ricochet, with MVP as the manager. That would be a nice direction for all of those guys. Okay. It'd be something. Yeah. Uh, I mean, MVP and Lashley together, I think that'd be great. But you know, MVP that- and Lashley, to me, would be... And, and that's at least one where they are teasing Lashley, um, mm-hmm. hooking up with someone else, and MVP would be at the top of the list. Yes, for sure. You know, Cruz and Ricochet, it would seem like they would, you'd be turning them heel if it was, if they were part of that whole group, but it's, it's, it's like this company has just got their hands on like TNA from like 2015, 2016. Well, Well, they've got the same people Uh, in the back. It's very true. And it's like, look at this, like Drew McIntyre is your champion. You're Mm -hmm. doing like your own final deletions and we'll probably get MVP with Bobby Lashley. No, it's true. I mean, like Abyss is there, Jared, um, Pritchard. Uh, or some other names like Borash. Borash. Yep. Yeah. 
Joseph Park, Sanjay Dutt. I mean, yep. it's you know a ton of that that nucleus of what was TNA has mm-hmm. been absorbed by WWE over these last number of years. They're just setting up the next invasion. All right. Well, thanks, everyone, for your feedback tonight. Uh, you can always leave your feedback, and including for Tiger King, uh, if you would so like to share your thoughts on Tiger King. Let us uh, finish off the show with what I thought was, uh, well, I would say one of the best things the WWE has produced, way you may not have even thought it was the best thing they produced that day. But uh, Edge, the WWE 24, the second mountain um I love this thing. I thought this was uh, a phenomenal documentary, and I think Edge was just a tremendous subject. Um, I I just thought this was outstanding for the 75 minutes that it lasted. I I absolutely thought this was among their best 24s that they've done. I mean, they've done quite a few. 24 is a series that actually dates back to 2015. I'm really surprised to see right now. Um, And I I feel like they've kind of like been of various qualities and even various styles and certainly of various lengths. This one, I'm trying to see, might actually be the longest 24 that they've ever done because most of them would just kind of top up at about like an hour. The mm. Kofi one was about an hour and six minutes. And so that, yeah, it would make this one an hour fi- at, at an hour 15, the longest one. And I really thought it was great. As you know, Edge talks about at the beginning, this was not supposed to be a comeback story. This was supposed to be, I don't know, just a documentary about like his life as a retired professional wrestler. But um, clearly there was a lot more story to tell and they continued to follow him throughout his journey uh, on his comeback. He's incredibly honest, of course, as usual about um, the decision, not just to retire, but then to come back. And they did play that footage of the mountain bike crash from the Seamus uh, YouTube video. Like, how lucky are they? Like, I mean, obviously not lucky. Oh, dude, it's WWE. It's like they... Well, this was Seamus, but... You know. Yeah, but I mean, just the fact that it was on camera, that they yeah. got to be able to utilize it for this. I mean, that would have been, you know, you're, you would just be begging to to see that uh, if he was constantly talking about that, that bike crash being the, like the first kind of hint of him even opening his mind to this possibility and what it blossomed into. And the timing of it all, it happens a week before he's going to be in Toronto to close his mother's estate, which Mm. just happens to be when SummerSlam is also taking place. And by happenstance, it's like, oh, I'm going to go and, you know, say hi to everybody and do this promo segment where he maintains that, you know, he was not cleared. It was designed to be a promo segment. And he ends up getting into the ring, giving Elias a look and delivers the spear. And do, do you think that was called on the spot? Do you think he he didn't talk I, to Elias? I b- I believe him because I I heard like the week after that of people that you would certainly believe would have been looped in if that was going to be happening and were very surprised that he did that. So I I I believe it when he says that. Wow, because that could have gone terribly. What if Elias is like, what are you looking at me like that for? I mean, the only to me, it's it's like the only thing would have been if it was like Vince being the only one that knew. But that idea that like any notion of that to me was dashed the second we saw Beth's reaction. That was clear that she did not know. And there's no way Edge is doing that without if it was a planned spot, not telling her. So I I 100 percent believe Edge's story in this that that he was not cleared. 
Certainly some of my favorite moments were seeing Edge interact with Beth. I mean, they are a couple that, you know, as we've known for a long time, but they're a couple that didn't form until Edge retired. And, you know, with the two of them, I would say largely kind of being out of the spotlight, except for Beth, you know, being a commentator. And the um, connection to the Air Canada Center. I yeah. never knew that story. Like they, like when you think about like Beth came into the company, like she was in OVW and then came up, I think she got called up around like 07. So, I mean, they were, they were there in the company together, like their time overlapped, but they, they didn't really have much of any kind of relationship until they started talking at the Edge Appreciation Night that year. And I think we were at that show. I think we were too. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it was nice kind of getting this little document about their history together because that, I, as far as I know, that hasn't really been discussed too much. And to get to see some of their family life and um, you kind of really do appreciate these people for like the difficulty of having to juggle both their in-ring careers as well as just daily life, trying to manage, you know, a travel schedule with raising two children at the same time. Um, I thought that was some of the best stuff in the show is, you know, seeing Beth Phoenix just talk about just, you know, I mean, getting so emotional, um, it's seeing how hard her husband's working. And to me, like the camera that's on her as Edge is coming out for the rumble where you see tears in Beth's eyes. I mean, that that's love, man. That was that was really nice. What like I, I don't have this experience that you do, but if you were in that position, would you be uncomfortable shooting that or do you feel that it's. You're, yeah. you're ultimately, she deep down probably wants that to be part of this, to be documented. There are certainly moments of like, you know, that, that I've had where like, you know, it, it feels really personal and you definitely have to ask yourself if like you should be respectful right now. At the same time, if you're backstage at a WWE show where there are a million cameras around anyway, I think, and if you're I like- I think it's if, assumed in this environment, yeah. like you are always, there is always going to be some camera there. Like there's no privacy. Especially if you're a wrestler who's used to it. And especially if you know your husband's getting a documentary made of, out of you. I think if you're, if, like in MMA, I feel like you would maybe run into a bit more awkwardness. But when it comes to professional wrestling, you're talking about people who are just like, you know, who are trained to be in front of a camera and the, and- I would say most often know exactly what the end product is, is supposed to look like. So I would feel less hesitation for something like this. Yeah, it was, it was very, uh, it was a cool shot that they had uh, being able to shoot her doing, uh, doing this. Uh, I, I loved all the stuff like at home with their family. Uh, in many ways that kind of, to me was like the, uh, the part I enjoyed the most about just seeing this individual in Adam Copeland, that it's very clear to him that like, this is a guy that ha so clearly has his priorities in order. Like this, this wrestling thing is nice. This comeback is really cool, but this guy is like, this is his priority is being at home. And I think that that's easier said than done for a lot of people that they spend their careers on the road. And it's, it's not always the easiest home life. And this is a guy that seems to be extremely grounded. Well, Daniel Bryan, I think, you know, as, as a, maybe a, a more popular case of, as of late where, I mean, even he, his story is pretty much documented about dealing with depression, uh, as you'll see on Total 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 Bellas. Um, he he clearly had a lot more difficulty, I think, dealing with it, and I'm sure Edge did as well. But um, we didn't really kind of, at least from the sense I got from the documentary, it felt like he had made the transition. I would say pretty well, found a, a new love of acting. Um, you know, was was still very active, but I think you know, from what we can tell in the documentary, was always bothered that, that he didn't get to go out on his own terms. And that's why he chose to come back. And how about 
Todd Shapiro and Dean Blundell ending up in a WWE documentary. That was oddly, like, I know that sounds really weird, but it was, it oddly just like made sense. You know, like we're talking about Toronto guy, it's edge in Toronto. On the edge. On the edge. Exactly. It just seemed to fit. Um, but that was like, what How old was this interview though? Oh. I mean, this is like, God, they haven't been doing that morning show. The two of them, uh, like like Jason Barr left. Like I, I, I don't, I, I don't think, I don't even think the like edge years, is, dude. I don't even even think that studio is there anymore on Young Street. I think this was the Queens Key location. I, th- I think oh, that's okay. where this was. Well, chorus. Yeah. Oh, okay. You could be right. Um, I don't know. Well, I mean, this was soon after his retirement, right? Or yeah, I mean, this was way back. So th- this was probably around like you know 2011, 2012, because it's right when he's just getting into um, acting at that point. So um, it, it is an old interview. And maybe it was just something like they had video of it. So it was, you know, media clip. He, uh, you know, <laughs> excuse me, uh, talks about, you know, the passing of his mother um, and Beth's, I believe, fa- father yes. at the time. And, you know. Which were di- just in a few months of each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, um, yeah, that that part was it was very sad. Just, uh, you know, he, he grew up with, with a single mother. And, you know, showing just the footage from the appreciation night and, you know, obviously that had to be a a real, real significant loss in his life. Um, In terms of like, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say everything about this documentary, of course, is like leading up to that big one moment. And it it almost like it's almost kind of sad to hear like them, Dash Wilder, you know, being there, all of them kind of talking about like wow, this is going to be such an amazing moment when you make that debut at WrestleMania in front of that crowd. They even flew a ring to Edge's house in order to get him the train in private. And then he ended up having a match that it didn't involve a ring at all. So, like, all these bumps that the guy was taking, I mean, obviously it wasn't for nothing, but maybe it would have been better if they, like, installed, like, a fence on the ceiling for him to practice the uh, Spider-Man elbow drop or something. I did find like um it's it's almost like they don't call any attention to it but it really struck me like as we're hearing from him more and more with Christian that here's Edge that I mean both of them are in the same boat where they didn't get to retire on the, on their terms they were both told you've had your last match and here's Edge getting like this m- miraculous chance to come back and do this and you know, for for Jay, it it doesn't look like that that option will be there for him, and maybe that's not even something he he wants. Mm-hmm. But I just found it interesting here that here is this guy getting that unbelievable chance that no one believed he would, and here's you know one of his best friends that you know had the very similar circumstances that that he ended up having to retire from. I mean, that's sort of a story that kind of writes itself. If, if you know, there's ever a role for Christian as sort of perhaps like a heel manager or something to oppose Edge, I think that would be a great story. Um, certainly, like, from what I can gather, you would probably be able to tell me more than, you know, uh, most. But, like, Christian seems to have a personality that's a lot more subdued. And so I, would he kind of, you know, be very loud? I don't know. Um, I'm not sure, but certainly like I would say in some of the interactions he has with Edge in this documentary, you could perhaps, if you wanted to infer some sort of jealousy or bitterness. I, I think, Hey, if they, I, I mean, it's, 
it's so strange. Like you, your, your knee jerk reaction is just to say, like, you don't ever assume someone is going to wrestle again, but it's like, look at this list of talent that, you know, WWE medical had disqualified. And now all of a sudden they're, they're back. I mean, it's, you look at it and it's like, everyone has different circumstances, but it's, you know, you do, do you discount like, Obviously, there's going to be somewhere. It's just it's so extreme. Like you will never imagine someone being cleared. But I think everyone would have said that about Brian Danielson. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And certain like Edge, this guy, he had double fusion surgery. That was that was the 2003 fusion. Comes back, does you know the remainder of his career, and then gets the C4 fusion as well. So he's had like his neck was just just destroyed from wrestling. And I'm really amazed that like he has the mobility that he has with like such crazy invasive surgery um, afterwards. And I I have to imagine he's just a lucky one, right? Like, yeah. And I, and I think like that and still be able to do what he does. Yeah. And I think also like that, you know, you watch it and it's like, I, I would imagine being ultra concerned if I was, you know, involved yeah. in this or someone close to him Beth very clearly states as much I that to me was one of the most uh emotional parts of this was when she was talking about like Edge's mom like the final thing she said to Beth about take please take care of my son and that burden that she has on herself now of wanting to see her husband have this this dream come true but at the same time concerned about about his health and that this promise she made i mean it was this was extremely like a very uh emotional documentary to watch you know so you see you see this build up and like i've said before i don't really have too much sympathy for i think performers who you know might have their wrestlemania moment quote-unquote ruined because of everything everything that's going on because there's so many people that are doing far worse right now uh, and so many more things to worry about. But I think, you know, I watch something like this and you're kind of taken into like, you know, the hopes and the fantasies of like this guy working this hard to try to come back and Beth working this hard to maintain their home life just to allow this guy to train and come back. And you do, certainly do feel disappointment that, you know, especially coming off of the reaction to the match he had with Randy Orton, I imagine, you know, <laughs> a reaction far from, I think, what he had intended when he began this journey. And then as we get into the comeback, this is where we get, you know, pretty much Adam Copeland being an open book here. He said, another company within the industry contacted me and said they were interested and wanted to know if I could wrestle. And at this point, I didn't know if I could. So before I did anything, I decided I needed to go and find out. And then adding that when he would receive their offer, he told them, I have to go to Vince McMahon because he has always done right by me and was the guy that gave me my push that the guy that like, really, when you look at the trajectory of, of edge, I mean, that is not someone where you can point at and say, man, they really held him back here. Or, I mean, mm-hmm. this was a guy that he know, was one of the chosen ones. I would say he was like, he had that, that really short title reign in 2006. And there was a lot of complaints that they took the title off him way too soon because uh, television viewership did go up noticeably during those four weeks. But the silver lining to that is, okay, we're taking the title off you, but Edge was pretty much made after that. From 2006 onward, he was he was one of their guys, and they were that was someone that they had all the confidence in the world that they could always go to. He was 
a pillar of SmackDown. He got the Undertaker match. He got the Close Mania. Like he got, he TLC's, was like, well, I mean, I guess that that was kind of not necessarily with like, um, like you know, sort of a, a company major push behind it. But I mean, just I, what I mean is career highlights that people can only dream of. Like this was a stellar career mm-hmm. that had it ended. I mean, it's like you're looking back on it. And it's like this is this is a pretty goddamn complete career. And, um, you know, that's why you look at now of what the what the goals are for him. It's like it's a whole fresh slate of guys he can work with. That certainly has to be enticing. Well, I certainly noticed like somewhere in this match or, or in this documentary, he talks about his run possibly being for a couple of years. It wasn't a one match thing. No, I mean, it's, he has signed a multi-year deal and it's expected. It's going to be, you know, uh, he's not going to be wrestling weekly or anything like that. Um, but I, I think you're certainly going to expect him to be like, look at the shape he has gotten himself into. And I think mm-hmm. that it's, I, I would not expect him to be a, a once a year kind of guy. I think you're, I think you're going to see him like mixed in throughout the year. Do you expect him on these empty arena shows? For a promo, yes. I would not be wasting a match of his in this setting. That would be so sad, honestly. It'd be, it'd be honestly sad. No, what if it was like a Money in the Bank? Like, what if it was like one of their I, papers? I'll be honest. I do not ever want to see that guy in a ladder match ever again. Oh, no. Not, not. Wow. Man, I could definitely see them promoting that, though. Oh, Ed returns I, I, I would really hate that. And I would hope that he would have the sense that, like, you see him in this documentary explain, like, there are things he will not do any longer. I would think ladder matches are maybe the number one thing because he has always been outspoken about that. He did dive off of, like, a number of things. He, he did a lot recently in, the, in that particular match. Um, then after, like, they. Pretty much, like, they don't go into specifics about the deal, but they reach one. With Vince McMahon, he gets cleared by Dr. Maroon, um, who was the same doctor that had medically disqualified him in 2011. And he met with various doctors, gave Beth the news that he was cleared, and then it's off to the races. Like, he's getting in shape. We see him go to WWE headquarters, where they are openly, like, filming him. He's meeting with all these people. I mean, it's pretty out in the open here. Yeah, I'm surprised that... um... I guess it was kept pretty, you know, behind closed doors, but clearly a lot of people knew. I mean, there was, like, we look back, like, there was, like, reporting on it, like, through through Dave Meltzer, through Mike Johnson, and I think, like, there were definitely indications the week of, of the potential of him showing up in the Royal Rumble. So I would not say it's, like, this out-of-left-field surprise, like, certainly. And, I mean, he even uh, acknowledged it. Was it in the documentary or, or another interview? It's in the documentary where he talks about, like, the reports that are out there. Like, Edge was spotted in Pittsburgh. He must be seeing Dr. Maroon. It's like they were right on the money. Like, that's that's why he was there in Pittsburgh. So, mm. um, anyway, the ending is just him getting ready, incorporating Dash Wilder here, which I thought was really interesting considering this guy is, you know, on – it feels like he's on the doorstep out of the company and was – featured here as like getting the ultimate endorsement here from edge and being this guy that he's known for years that he took his DVD to John Laurinaitis and recommended him. Well, maybe they could have blurred his face out. <laughs> I got one of this. Um, um, yeah, then, no, he, I mean, it seems like they these guys have a great friendship. Uh, and I, I mean, I'm, you know, this is, I guess one of those things where it feels like the network stuff has a lot more leeway than I'm sure if this was like, you know, a TV presentation. Yeah, and uh, worked in his line as well. 
No knock on anybody, but I'm not coming back for a 40-second match. Well, that was proven. Maybe maybe he's, uh, maybe he's uh, shooting some angles here on this documentary, too. Uh, what do you mean? I don't know. Him and Goldberg, him and Lesnar. Oh, got it, got it. And then yeah. we ended with the Foo Fighters. Yeah, they got the Foo Fighters to do this. Man, Are they, they friends just... or something? Uh, he, he's a big Pearl Jam guy. I don't know what oh, his uh, affinity is for, for the Foo Fighters. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever met anyone that dislikes the Foo Fighters. Yeah, I don't, I don't dislike them. Uh, like by the pretty, way, pretty neutral band. I would say so. Kurt Cobain, I believe it was his like the anniversary of his death yesterday or two days ago. April 4th? 5th. Oh, it was the 5th. Okay. He would have been basically um, four decades of the Big Show's career old. Yeah, that was like over 10,000 days ago. <laughs> yes. But 94? 94. Yeah. I believe that uh, this will tie into uh, 102.1 The Edge. I think like for a lot of people, I, I wasn't listening to the station at that time. I was I was like 10. But Alan Cross, I think, came on the air and announced that he had died. And I think for a lot of people, that was the first that they heard of it. Like think of in 94, how news is spreading. That's insane. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as far as like, you know, celebrity rock star deaths, that, that was a monumental one. Oh, that would be in this day and age. Can you imagine like the, like that was gigantic then, but compound that now. Like, hmm. The equivalent of like a Kurt Cobain. Like, what would you say of the last decade or so? Like, the biggest like celebrity passings. Like, you would say Kobe Bryant. Yeah. Michael sure. Jackson. Um, oh, he died way way. He he was two thousand right? he two thousand nine. He died. Uh, you know you'd have to ask, like ask. I don't even know who the big celebrities are right now. Did Amy Winehouse die this decade? She died within the decade. Twenty eleven. Yeah. I mean, is that is that? I don't know. That one was. It was it was certainly like a, a big story, but I don't think it was uh, one where it was like, like it affected everything. You know what I mean? Like Kobe Bryant was probably the biggest one that I can recall in like that just that was so enormous. Yeah, we're talking about like, you know, maybe like a, a celebrity dying when they're young. Right. Well, Kobe Bryant was young. Yeah, yeah. Sorry. Like, but, you know, like not David Bowie, not, you know, somebody who. Who is older, mm -hmm. like somebody dying in their prime? Yeah, right. Yeah, I think that has a big thing to do with it too. Kurt Cobain was how old? Like twenty five, twenty. God, twenty five. Yeah, twenty seven. Twenty seven. Twenty seven years old, man. Like no, imagine. Th think of what he did. That he was twenty seven and he had done all that. And sometimes, though, I wonder if like he's accomplished more in death. There's definitely an aspect to that, that it's, it's suddenly like, it's the legend of this person that mm -hmm. has died as well. His daughter, Francis Bean is his age when he died. Wow. Yeah. That puts into perspective. Crazy. Biggie was 24. Died on, what, died on my birth. It? 24. Wow. Yeah. No, that's amazing. Like the amount of impact he's had. That's crazy. Well, uh, 
I don't have a segue to wrap up the show, but uh, thank you, everybody. Go watch this documentary if you have not seen it. I really believe it's it's one of the finest things that the WWE has put out. Uh, what my final question is, you know, when it comes to year end awards, okay, yeah, what does the Firefly Funhouse and Boneyard match? What category does that go into? Because it can't be best match. The, the debate about whether or not these are to be considered matches and whether you give them star ratings or, you know, you run a, t- a stopwatch on them. I mean, uh, I don't think ridiculous. You do. Like it's, you know, it's, it, but whether or not it's a match is up for debate. Cause what is a match? What are the technical, like, what are the qualifications for something to be considered a match? Does a bell have to be rung? Does it have to take place inside a ring? Does it have to have a pinfall? Mm. Um, and these are questions I love, like kind of discussing. It, it like challenges the art form. Well, I don't have the answer either. I'm not alluding to the fact that I do. I it, would, I would put it out there to people. If somebody like decided to call that match the best match of the year, or the Boneyard match the best match of the year, I wouldn't argue. I wouldn't disagree with it. Oh, I'm expecting um, you to be potentially one of those people. Well, I will say I, I would personally maybe you know depending on how many choices I have. Like usually like for those end year end shows, I just like to like have a place to be able to discuss all my favorite things of the year. And if I happen to have another match that kind of like fits the qualification a lot more, I guess you would consider this what best segment, you know, what other category or best. I think because there's such a heavy uh, like production element to this. I mean, this is like so much like this could not be done live or even live to tape. So I think that like it's inherently something different than a match because they can't be presented in the same way and therefore be a new category yeah that best be. cinematic hey after after we get through like whatever matt hardy is going to do i mean we're gonna have enough candidates here for this to be its own category sure sure yeah. like, much like best empty arena match we could have best uh best pre-produced um match slash segment imagine timing this one like... i didn't even i didn't even give it a a, a possible uh second of thought does this get a star rating, either of these? Uh, Well, it's on Grapple, from what I know. Um, Well, Dave rated. That, that's really fascinating. I, I Again, I don't know. I've, I have no idea. Well, we will see. I, don't know how, I, I just don't know how you would even do it. That's why I don't even get into ratings to begin with. Well, wait. This has been a fun chat. Uh, we'll be back Tuesday night. Tiger King review. Wednesday, Jim Ross on the show. And then the Cafe Hangout thursday so i can tell you that on wikipedia somebody actually did time it oh and god it's listed as 13 minutes same with the boneyard f- match 19 minutes 19 minutes that thing yeah. was wow okay let's see if cage match i'm sorry sorry to keep dragging this thing out but i'm just very curious did you watch did you watch the undertaker preview no i haven't i haven't there's just been so much to catch up yeah on. how is yeah. it it looks really good so oh, the, the premise is that right before WrestleMania 33, which was the Roman Reigns match, Undertaker called Vince McMahon and he said he's willing to be profiled, cameras following him out of character for the first time in his career. So they're going to release this limited series that follows him out of character from 2017 up until this year. And it's a 13-minute preview that they put on the network last night. And it features him in the lead up to the match with Roman Reigns and him coming to terms of all of his physical limitations. Like if you, this is him, this is him way more candid than even on the Steve Austin podcast. He is just sitting there and you can see it is a real challenge for him to actually 
verbalize on camera where he says, I can't work a full schedule any longer. And he says it and he goes, well, there, I guess I've said it. Like it is such a difficult admission for him. And it like everyone is interviewed for this. They've got Vince McMahon doing a sit down for this. Wow. Mick Foley, Michelle McCool, Edge, Bret Hart, everybody like this is to me going to be the WWE's version of like your finest 30 for 30. Like that is what this is trying to be presented as to WWE fans. And I think that it, it looks incredibly engaging. Like this could be very, very good because it it sounds like it's going to be Mark Calloway, just completely open and candid about his limitations and his struggles. And think about the ground that covers like the Roman Reigns match. That was pretty disappointing. He does the, the retirement. That's not the retirement at that year's WrestleMania. Then he goes through a really, um, smoke and mirrors match with John Cena the next year. There's the Goldberg fiasco last year. Like I'll think of these three years. Like mm-hmm. there have been, there have been some, some good points for him, but a lot of age and injuries slapping him in the face. I think. And, and to watch this 24 hours after you watch this guy, arguably steal the show at WrestleMania on that first night, it, it kind of led me like after all this discussion about adding years to this guy's career, like that's a hell of a way to end things off. Like you could certainly argue that Taker and AJ was the thing that stole, stole the weekend for people. Yes, absolutely. Um, but it's because it's like, it's a match type that seems to, and, and like a, a way to, you know, do a Taker appearance that fits so well for him that I think, for the first time in years, you're having people clamoring for more of this version of The Undertaker. You know? Maybe that's how you go off the stage while everyone's on their feet clapping. Wouldn't be a bad way. By the way, Cage Match does have a time. 18-18 for the Boneyard match. And <laughs> um, none, none for the Firefly Funhouse. How do you... Because I, I always would, would think about this naturally. Like, what... There's no is, bell. Is AJ getting out of the hearse, the signifier, is the first point of contact where it starts? Oh, and what is the ending? Like, is it when the fist goes up in the air on the bike? Is it when Metallica plays on the way out? I mean, what is what are the bookends of the Boneyard match? We got to ask Jimmy Corderas, I think. Oh. Like, I, not to mention the fact that there were, like, replays in this thing. Like, they were, like, editing, editing this so that, like, they were playing with the concept of time within it. It wasn't even a linear thing. I will say after this weekend, this is this is all I want. Okay, I don't know if WWE is ever going to give us a guest ever in our history, but if there's one thing I want, if they come to me and they say, "Hey, you can have anyone you want, John, anyone on the roster," we're going to give you one interview. Okay, you post wrestling guys, you can have one interview, and then I never want to hear from you. I would say, you know what? I want Bray Wyatt, and I want Wei Ting to interview him. That would be oh, what geez. I want. I would step aside. That's the interview I want. I want 30 minutes of you with Bray Wyatt, and I want you to sit down and get into this man's head. Get into the Firefly Funhouse? Yes. Step through the door? And then it's you interviewing yourself, really. Wow. (laughs) Going through all my That would be the interview. That that, that now is the new new dream interview. I'd be taken back to, like, you know, um, going into Brian Sobey's office, and then all of a sudden I'd be call waiting. And then I would be uh, talking to myself from the way in. 
Oh, and then and then suddenly we we cut and you're there. It's the SMC or oh jeez, like oh man, Farah's there and uh, <laughs> and then suddenly like Lev is staring at you and and then and then you turn into liquid cash. I think this podcast has gone on for way too long. Oh, has it begun or has it started? Okay, that made no <laughs> sense. Goodbye, everyone. We're really tired. <laughs>